Lord, we come to you now, and uh, we thank you for our time tonight. I pray that as we study through Nehemiah, that you would show us, uh, just continue to show us as we, as we looked at last week, um, the uh, particularly um, signs of godly leadership, the kind of leadership that, that reflects your character and that shows people truths about Jesus. I pray that you would show us what it means to move as a people who have a mind to work and who are like-minded in Christ and uh, ultimately anything else you want to show us in this study. Uh, we, each week we come together and we know what book we're in, that we're in, but we trust the Holy Spirit to guide us and to, um, to show us things that, uh, that we need to see uh, when we need to see them. So we humble ourselves before you tonight and just ask that you would bless our time together. I also pray that you would bless uh, the time that the kids have in their classes. Um, even our young kids, it's not just babysitting, but they're engaging the word in, in just different ways depending on their age. And so even our little ones up through the Adele's teaching our older ones and the youth over in the treehouse, we pray, Lord, that you would move as you see fit and inform your people and encourage your people and show us what we need to see uh, when we need to see it so that we can walk in it and put your glory on display. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have been in Ezra and Nehemiah. We spent one week in Ezra and two weeks in Nehemiah. Um, originally, they were the same book in the canonization, and then they changed it to two books because of the main characters. So we've kind of been in the same book for three weeks, at least the same story. So my first question will be a real general question to get us back into it moving. What has been going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Rebuilding. Rebuilding what? The wall. Why does it need to be rebuilt? It was destroyed by who? The Babylonians. Anyone remember the year? What? We'll go with that. I'm sitting here thinking 586, but like five of y'all said 587, so I'm feeling intimidated, and I'm just going to go with the crowd on this one. <laughs> what else has been going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Oh, oh, it was what? Oh, okay. I just, we'll just leave that. I was right. What else? What's going on in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? What are some cool things that have happened that would not have otherwise happened had God's hand not actually been upon his people? Everyone was working. That's a remarkable thing. Everyone had a mind to work, and they were working together on specific things with a common goal in mind. What else happened because God's hand was on them? Yep. Yes, their enemies have been giving them a hard time, and they have been protected from them. Uh, what, role, what role did the Word of God play in the movement of the Israelites? God's word has done some specific things. It's accomplished some specific things. What are some of those things? Yep, it influenced decisions. What else? Yeah, it led them to repentance. What else? Yep, it caused them to be like-minded because they were unified under the thought of the Lord. What else? 
Yes, they got rid of the intermarriage issue. What else has the word done? Yeah, it instructed them in exactly how to rebuild. It's done so much. All those things that y'all mentioned, it motivated them, it mobilized them, caused confession, repentance, conviction, it instructed them. And that's, that's what the word continues to do. The word is alive. In Hebrews 3, it says that, that, it is, uh, that the spirit still moves and the word is alive and that when it hits us, it does the same thing that it did to them and it causes us to do the same things that it did to them. We can see constancy there. When God's hand was upon them, it's the same way as when it's upon us and because our God is, is unchangingly good. Um, what are some characteristics of godly leadership that we considered last week? A godly leader does what? What was the first thing? He leads. That's a big deal. <laughs> some people, that's a starting point. Yeah, it's uh, leaders lead. What else? He prays. He prays. Absolutely. He prays. Um, and then what, what does he do after he prays? Yeah, he works. He goes to work. He acts. There's things that happen. Um, we, we considered last week that we, we can't end up in that boat where we just choose one or the other, where we either pray or we do something, but we pray and we do something. And um, something I, I, I just generally have concern for in, in reformed circles is using God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. You know, God's sovereign. If he wants to do it, he'll do it. We'll just sit and wait. No, we see here a great example of they prayed and they acted. And in fact, his prayer, it wasn't this like, let's pray for two days necessarily and do something. Although there are times where that's appropriate. I mean, later on in the book, they, they read the Bible for eight days out loud. So, um, but what he does at the beginning, do y'all remember what he did with the king at the very beginning of Nehemiah? He had, a, he had an opportunity there. And it said he prayed and then he lays out this plan of action on we're going to need timber. Well, which one of your guys is in charge of the forest? We need a letter to give to that guy. And I'm not just going to need timber for the, the walls. I'm going to need to build myself a house. I'm going to need, you know, entrance and I'm going to need access. And there's this plan that came together because he prayed and he had an opportunity with the king and he made the most of it. Um, so uh, at the very least, what we saw last week is that godly leadership prays and they act. They, they, they do things. They move. What does the wall have to do with being distinct? As we climb back into this story, what does the wall have to do with being distinct? Yeah, it provides separation. And why is that significant? From outside influence. Yeah, we looked at um, without a wall, you, you are just susceptible to all outside influence. And so, the separation that it provides is, is a separation that leads to distinction, not just being away from the culture and keeping the culture at arm's length. Um, for us today, what, what does that look like? Because we want to make sure there wasn't any confusion last week about why we don't have a wall around our facility here. What's that look like for us today? Let me be more specific. What kind of walls should we have that make us distinct, and what kind of walls shouldn't we have that make us closed off? Mm -hmm. Walls from worldly influence. What else? How's that going to play out? What is a wall from worldly influence? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Sometimes awareness of the Spirit is, is a great wall because you're, you're wanting to stay in step with the Spirit as you are walking through culture rather than saying, oh, well, if that's what everyone else is doing, that's what I'm going to do. You say, if I'm staying in step with the Spirit, I'm going to look at the Word and say, does this fit? And if not, I'm not, I'm not going to go down that road. And so just an awareness of the Spirit is, a, is a, an appropriate wall. Now, um, how do we keep from the mistake of of just shutting all of the bad people out um, so that we're not influenced by them. Because we're called to be ambassadors. We have a message to speak on behalf of our king. So how do we, how are we members of the kingdom without making the mistake of staying away from all the evil people? What's that look like for Christians? Yeah, setting an example for them? Absolutely. Your goal as Christians isn't to make sure you don't have any non-Christian friends. We should, we should have non-Christians that we're engaging regularly because how else will they hear the message that we have from our Lord? And so it's, it's good to be reminded of that. As we talk about this wall, that's something I'm always careful. The wall makes them distinct. You don't want any holes in the wall. You don't want to be susceptible to the enemy. Yet we have to move in that and step with the Spirit without shutting out people who don't know Jesus because... Our, our goal, our purpose, the whole reason you were put on planet Earth is to glorify God, and you do that by speaking his message to others the way he tells you to speak it. And he gives you those opportunities. And if you're closed off to people who don't know Jesus, you'll not see those opportunities for what they are. You'll just see them as distractions and inconveniences, which is not good. Um, what was Nehemiah's role at the beginning of Nehemiah? He was what? What to the king? Cupbearer to the king. What does that mean? What's that mean? Yeah, he served in the one. He, he, we'll say he bore the cup. And, uh, and what was his role after he left there? What responsibility did he have? Yeah, governor. Go, go and do what, you're, what you feel led to do. And, and he was given resources and, and permission from the king, who was not an Israelite or Jew, depending on... Well, what time? Uh, we had a funny conversation about when did they become Jews, Israelites, and when did the shift happen? There's a really good article. I'll forward it to you if you want it. He sent it to me. Um, what happened before the Israelites started the work of rebuilding? What did they do before they started the work? They made... Altars? That totally fits, actually. Wasn't what I was going for, but it works. They made plans. They didn't just launch off into whatever happened. They made plans, and that happened before they did the work. And then after they did the work, um, what did they meet? After they started the work. It rhymes with schmopposition. Yes, opposition, that's exactly right. So before they started the work, they made plans, then they got to doing the work, and then they were met with opposition afterwards. So this is where we're picking up from last week. I feel like we've, we've done an okay job of diving back in here. Nehemiah 
prays, acts, and leads others in how to act. He prays and he acts and he leads others in how to act. And not only that, but Nehemiah exhorts those who are discouraged and fearful. And this is another sign of good, godly leadership. What, what kind of leadership is pleasing to the Lord in whatever scenario you have? And as I'm talking through godly leadership, I want y'all to think in terms of just where God has you in your life. Like, I really want you to connect with the roles that he has you in. Because some of y'all might be sitting there saying, well, I'm not much of a leader. So I don't know if this applies to me. But you're a Christian, and you've been tasked with work from the Lord, and you have been equipped by the power of the Spirit and blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and you've been given a message to speak as an ambassador on behalf of your king. And so in some way or another, whether it's at work, whether it is in your home, whether it is with your spouse, whether it's, whether it's with children, whether it is within your friendships, you will have opportunities to lead out as a Christian. And anytime you lead out in any manner whatsoever— you want to reflect the character of God. So when I'm talking about godly leadership, I'm not just talking about a pastor or someone who works at a church or anything like that. I'm talking about the way we're called to lead out as Christians um, with those who are either hurting, confused, in need of something, and, and can hear the message that we have to bear. So as we're talking through that, and I say that he prays and he acts and he leads others in how to act, think about the roles that you have. And what we're going to see here is that Nehemiah... He exhorts others who are discouraged and fearful. You probably have opportunities in that when you meet others who are discouraged about something or fearful about something. And what Nehemiah did was he, he encouraged them in that situation. When, and when opposition arises in 414, um, we have, remember the Braveheart moment that we talked about last week, 414, it says, uh, go ahead and turn to Nehemiah 414. Do not be afraid of them. Like they just came and said, they're coming after us. They're going to kill us. Nehemiah, what do we do? And there's fear and there's discouragement and there's opposition. And Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. His accent actually changed when he did it. It was remarkable. A kilt appeared. Half of his face was blue. But that's that moment where he's like, you know what? I care that they're discouraged. I care that they're upset. I care that they feel like they can't move forward. And, and I want to say something to them to help them move forward faithfully. And so he does that. Um, he does this because he cares about people. That's a sign of, of good Christian leadership. He cares about people. He cares about the people that he's leading. He cares about the people that he has opportunities with. And that's another sign of godly leadership is caring. Look at five. I'm going to read one through five. And there's a problem that arises, and I want you to see how Nehemiah cares for the people that, that he has opportunity with. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's uh, tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So from those verses, what's the problem that Israel is facing? How would you put that in your own words? What is the problem that Israel is facing, the challenge? They're in debt. How has that happened? 
There's a famine. And who are they in debt to? King? Who else? Say that again. People with more money? And what's happening to their kids? Slavery. This is not a good situation. This is talking about how they're walking with each other. There's power to do something here, but here you see it's not in our power to help it is what they say. And so Nehemiah hears that and he hears them saying it's not in our power to help it. We're, we, we we're, we're kind of high center. We can't move forward because this work we're called to is important, but we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our children are enslaved because of the debt to the king. And it's all within this community of people who are, are Israelites and, and they're called to walk together. And so... Um, I want you to look at how Nehemiah responds to this and, and consider what's revealed about the way that he really cares uh, for people. Look at verses 6 through 19. This is Nehemiah's response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Sometimes that's a sign of a good leader. Just say something as plain as, the thing you're doing is not good. And that's what he says to him. The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that, um, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. What caused Nehemiah to be different from the other oppressive leaders? What'd you say? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what made Nehemiah different from the other oppressive governors. Um, 
there's a lot for us to consider here. Other governors were oppressive. Nehemiah wasn't oppressive. The rebuke was you should have the fear of the Lord and it should change you. The reality that he speaks is I was different because I feared the Lord rightly. There's a lot of implications for this in, in, in our relationships and how we walk with people, how we lead people, how we encourage people, and it's this. If you have a hard time treating people respectfully, and like I'm assuming people in this room have a hard time doing that. There's days I have a hard time doing that. I'm probably most difficult with my children or most hard on my children, a tendency to be difficult um, and hard uh, toward my children. And if you have a hard time treating people respectfully, or if you easily oppress others and it doesn't bother you, if, if you have an attitude where it's like, I'm looking out for number one, and if that means I got to step on some people, I'm going to step on some people, I want you to know that's not a Christian attitude. So if you have the problem of oppressing others and it doesn't bother you, or if you're unnecessarily hard on your children, or if you just don't care about people's feelings, that's something I struggle with. I've, I've, I've explained that from the pulpit that like, I've ha- sometimes I can have a tendency to go to the word and not be as gentle with people as I should be because it's like, well, if what you're talking about makes you miserable, um, let's, let's just go over here and stop talking about it. You know, it's like the, the reality that I had when we went to a conference up north somewhere, I don't remember where we were on resolving conflict was um, you should care how other people feel. I was like, whoa, that's mind-blowing. You should care how other people feel. And the reason for that is you have to understand why they feel how they feel so that you can try to take them to a healthier place. It's not enough just to say, well, those feelings are stupid. Let's go to the Word. That's not enough. Or those feelings are, don't matter. Or those feelings are miserable. Let's go to the Word. You, you need to understand that. So if we don't care how people feel, there's something out of order there. If you don't care about people's feelings, um, if you're unnecessarily hard with them, it may be a worthwhile endeavor to sit with the Word in prayer quietly and consider if you're fearing the Lord rightly. If I find myself being particularly harsh on, a, on a, any given week, one of the best things I can do is sit with the word in prayer and consider, am I fearing the Lord rightly? Because what I'm seeing here in Nehemiah is the thing that kept him from doing what all the other governors did was he had a right fear of the Lord. And it's just another example of how your relationship with God affects all your other relationships. The, the way that you see the Lord treating you affects how you treat other people. I had to talk with my kids in the car and <laughs> on the way here. And it was, how was your day? And I went around, Henry, how was your day? Dude. Hattie, how was your day? Mm. Uh, she kind of made a noise. Ella, how was your day? Fine. Livy, how was your day? Horrible. <laughs> Livy, why was your day horrible? Ella wouldn't let me kick the ball. Ella wouldn't let you kick the ball, so your whole day was horrible. Yep, it was bad. <laughs> it's like, I was like, okay, let's try this. How's the Lord blessed you today? Livy, you go first. I have a sister. It's like, hold on, stop there. She didn't let you kick the ball, but you do have a sister, and that's something good. But what, what we saw just in the car, in the example, on the way here, was that the way she was viewing the Lord, not being mindful of how she was blessed, affected the way she viewed this relationship with her sister, and then her whole day was ruined because she didn't let her kick the ball. I mean, y'all, y'all can understand that. Not being able to kick the ball is a pretty big deal, especially when you really want to. And so our view of the Lord and how we're seeing how we're blessed, how we're seeing how we're guided, how we're seeing how he treats us um, affects the way that, that our relationships play out, our marriages, our, the way we are with our children. Because um, a right fear of the Lord 
will never result in oppressive leadership of his people. Right fear of the Lord will never result in oppressive leadership of his people. What did Nehemiah give up for the good of the people? Yeah, his own food allowance. And what was his reason for doing that? What did he say? Just too burdensome. So he's, he's in touch with the people that he's leading enough to know what's too burdensome and what's not. And he made a sacrifice out of his own pocket to say, you know what? I could take, I've got every right to that given my role, but I'm not going to do that because it's just too burdensome on the people given, given where we're at, given the condition of the fields and the vineyards and the, the debt and the enslavement. I'm not going to move like that. I could. I have the right to that, but I'm not going to do that. And the reason for that was because he had a right fear of the Lord, which led to a really tender, good, gentle love of the people. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a, really good allowance, uh, a really good example for any of us uh, who walk with other people. In short, what he does is he perceives their needs and he pours himself out for them. That's another sign of a good Christian leader. He perceives their needs and he pours himself out for them. In Corinthians, when it talks about how you serve other people and walk with other people, it's a, and this, we talk about this as a staff a lot, it says, <clears throat> um, Paul's talking about um, a number of things and some challenges in ministry, but he, he gets to this point and he says, I will gladly spend and be spent on the souls of God's children. He's saying, I, I know what I'm called to, and it means I'm going to be spent, and it means I'm going to spend, spend and be spent, but not just in sort of a, this is my J-O-B kind of way, but spend and be spent gladly, and not just on activities, but on souls. And so we talk about that a lot as a staff saying, are we spending and being spent gladly on souls? Are the, are the things that we're doing, the things we're putting in place, the curriculum that we're using, the schedule that we have, the encouragement that we give to workers, it, is there any soul work happening there? Are we spending and being spent gladly on souls? And even if there is soul work there, let's ask, are we doing it gladly? Or are we doing it begrudgingly? Are we bitter about any part of what we're doing? And if so, what do we need to do about that? Because we're called to spend and be spent gladly on souls. What Nehemiah does with the people is he, he sees their needs and he pours himself out for them. Um, this is a foreshadowing of Christ. It's a great example of how godly leadership puts his glory on display. When you pour yourself out for others, you model Jesus. Turn over to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, when you pour yourself out for others... You're, mo you're modeling one who's better than you. <clears throat> Philippians 2. Uh, let's look at verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That verse, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but consider others more significant than yourselves. I think if the church... I'm hopeful that the church and the coming generations can do more of that. I think maybe in, in the last 50 years, sadly, a lot of our churches are marked by rivalry and conceit. People from the outside look in and see a church, and they see people who are um, 
and rivalries with each other and against one another. And there's politics and there's sides. And that's not what the Lord tells us. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. That's how you stay away from rivalry. If you have a rivalry in your home, if you have a rivalry between your children, one thing that may be a great exercise for you to do with your kids is to look at them and say, okay, today you're going to treat your sister as more significant than yourself. What are some ways we can do that? (laughs) Generally, your kid will go, "Uh, I got nothing. What what do you got? Because it can be such a foreign concept because they're so inundated with what they want and what they need. My son comes in in every morning and says, um, milk. It's milk. He wants milk. He walks in, and the first thing he says, there's no good morning. There's no smile. He's got his white hair everywhere. And he goes, milk. Milk. And he'll just keep saying it until you get it. You go to the, and he won't drink it cold. So you take it to the microwave. You hit 35 seconds. For the whole 35 seconds, he sits there going, milk. Milk. And you give it to him, he's like, thank you. And he goes and he drinks his milk. And like, it is every single morning. It is not difficult for him to get into a place where he knows exactly what he wants. And it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. Um, There was a Saturday where we said, you know what? Let's not set an alarm. Let's just sleep until we sleep. And so, you know, like 7.15 rolls around, whopping 7.15. We hear Henry's door open. Then we hear our door open. And he just walks through and he goes, Milt, Milt. And he kind of turns around and we're both laying in bed and he goes, get out, Milt, get out. And then last week he came in, I'm not kidding. We've, we've had some brownies at our house and we had them on the countertop. And Henry comes in and he says, daddy, Milt, and two brownies. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, man, you're not eating brownies for breakfast. He can't even say that many words, but man, he knows what he wants. Putting others as more significant than ourselves may be a challenge to teach old Henry, but it's worthwhile. Why? Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. How much of your schedule is dedicated to interests that are your own? How much of your schedule is dedicated to interests that are others' interests? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count quality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The progression that we see in these verses is that of Jesus taking the form of a servant, telling us to follow his example, and the result is more people worshiping Jesus. That's the progression that we see in those verses. Jesus takes the form of a servant. He tells us to do what he did. And the result at the end is more people worship Jesus. There's more people praising his name. There's more knees bowing at his name by the end of the verse. This is what we mean when we speak of Christ's likeness and godliness. It's impossible to lead others to Jesus with a message that's counter to his message. It is not possible to lead others to Jesus with a message that is counter to his message. And 
It's not possible with actions that are counter to his actions. You really must consider this as part of counting the cost of following Jesus. Counting the cost. It's something we can throw around as Christians. Count the cost. You know, we're going to count the cost. Um, what does that mean? Well, if you hate serving others and you call yourself a Christian, something's amiss. That doesn't add up. If you're sitting here and saying, I, I just don't like serving other people, it, you need to consider you know, you're a Christian and you say you follow Jesus and he, he took the form of a servant. Um, for some of us, it may be more challenging. I'm not saying it can't be challenging. My, my goodness, if everything in faith that we were called to was easy, wouldn't that be nice? But it's not. So it can be challenging. But if, but if you're just against serving other people and you particularly like being served, something's not quite right. Um, Clay, he's a deacon in our church, and he, he regularly has reminded me of the verse that even Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Who are we to show up anywhere and expect to be served? Um, especially, you know, around here. We, we should be serving one another all over the place because we're counting them as more significant than ourselves, and we're looking to their interests and not just our interests, and that should bleed over into the culture, into our community. Um, if you express a deep desire to reach others for Christ, yet you don't know Christ's message and carry it with you and look for opportunities to share it, again, something's not right. You can't have a deep desire to win others to Christ and to share the message of Christ if you don't actually know the message. You're not going to know the message if you're not spending time in the Word and you're not engaged in a body that is preaching through that Word. What doesn't line up with the Scriptures will fail in regard to reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16? All scriptures breathed out by God, and, and that is the thing. God breathes out the scripture, and that's what makes us ready, good for reproof, correction, righteousness, that we would be equipped and ready for any good work. So things outside of the scripture will fail in actually preparing us for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We must always be careful to lead others to the one true God, not just our own version of him. Um, I was sitting in my office going my, over my notes, and I was trying to think through like, there were times where I didn't understand certain theological concepts or doctrines when I was younger, and someone would try to explain it to me, and I would say, not my God, mm -mm, not my God. And then later on, as I studied more and dug a little deeper into the scriptures, I realized that is God. So what did I mean when I said not my God? What I meant was not my version of God, which is an idol, and so what we have to be careful with is we always have to be careful to lead others to the one true God, not just our own version of him. So one thing I was thinking, a question I thought we could kick around was, can you guys think of any messages or schemes that people have tried to use to draw others to Jesus that don't line up with Jesus' message? And be nice. Prosperity gospel. Yeah, yeah, celebrities and worship. Joel Osteen was on Jimmy Fallon last night, in case y'all didn't see that. It's a great interview. Learned a lot. Who knows who Jimmy Fallon is? Raise your hand right now if you know. Okay. That gives me an, an understanding of where we're at. <laughs> Any other schemes or messages people try to use to draw people to Jesus? that don't actually line up with Jesus' message. 
good one. I mean, a good example. It's not a good, not a good message at all. It's really quite poor. It leaves out a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't even have to call it prosperity, health, and wealth. We just say, he just wants you to be happy. Well, what makes you happy? Good health, a lot of money, and things going right? Well, if that's what you want, then that's what God wants, right? No, that's not, that's not the message of the gospel. He actually wants a joy and a happiness. Put happiness away. He wants a joy for you that is much bigger than those things, much bigger. Do you see, you see how that happens? You think you're giving people what's best, but when you change the message, you're giving them far less than what Christ actually offers. To, to go to him and say, you, you know, come to Jesus and uh, uh, everything will be okay. Uh, well, Jesus actually says we can be blessed when, when we follow him, and he went to the cross. He says that there's blessing and there's even wisdom and insight that's gained um, in oppression and affliction. He says you'll be struck down, but you won't be destroyed. And when that happens, you'll know me in a different way. That's big. Like, that, that's the message of the gospel. That's not selling people short. The problem is there's so many that give people a message that says, come to Jesus and everything's going to be all right. And then something horrible happens in their life. And they're confused because they're saying, I thought if God loved me, this wouldn't happen. And this happened, but I believe that God is loving. What do I do? Because I got these two completely conflicting realities that are my reality. This is my life. And if someone didn't warn them, of how things would be until Jesus returns and told them a lie to try to get them to follow Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's someone's version of Jesus, which is called an idol. We have to be very careful with our message. Turn back to Nehemiah 6. We've seen that godly um, leadership prays. We've seen that godly leadership acts and one, one thing that we'll see here is that godly leadership faces opposition boldly. Godly leadership faces opposition boldly. We're in Nehemiah 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. So uh, we've just gotten through 5 where Nehemiah stops the oppression of the poor, and he's generous with them because he pours himself out to meet their needs because ultimately that's going to serve the purpose of showing us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And then in 6 it says, Now when Sanballat... And Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Um, he's so aware of what's going on. Like he's writing the story. And he's saying they knew we built the wall, but they didn't know I hadn't done the gates yet. But anyway, and he puts it in parentheses and he keeps going. I, I just like it. I picture a guy writing and thinking about these details as he's trying to write other details to inform us today in 2013. Verse 2, Samblot and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. <laughs> That's funny to me. Don't go to the plain of Ono. Um, but they intended to, meet, to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I love it. Nehemiah, we need to meet with you. I'm sorry, I'm busy and more important things. Leave a message and I'll get back to you later. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I wish we as Christians could do that more. 
we're distracted or we're oppressed or someone comes against us, there's opposition, there's something bad happens, it's inevitable, that's going to happen. How sweet would it be if more of us were able to say, why should the work stop? Why should the work stop? I've got more important things to tend to. That doesn't mean we don't mourn. It doesn't mean we don't weep with those who weep, but we don't stop tending to the important things. It goes on to say, and they sent me four times, and then in verse five, in the same way, Sambalot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, it's very official, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now, now that you know that we know that you know that we know, come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. <laughs> For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of <laughs> who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? Question mark. And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I'll not go in. And I understand and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And, that, and, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember to buy and sand blood, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. That's like the best verse. They're trying to take him from the work. They're trying to scare him. They're trying to intimidate him. They're, they're using fear tactics. They're hiring people. Like they're hiring prophets to speak prophecies that aren't actually prophecies, but they're making it. They're really putting their case together. And I love that in verse 15, it says, after all that, he says, no, that you made that up. That's in your own head. I didn't do that. We're not doing that. I'm not stopping the work. And then bam, so the wall was finished. Um, Zechariah 13, 7 says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Dever notes, um, Mark Dever, whose book we use as it's the survey of the Old Testament that we use as a general outline for our studies. He says in his notes, he says, facing opposition well is usually more complicated than people imagine. But this is what the leader does. Like Nehemiah, we must not let opposition drive us from God, but to God. There's nothing surprising about the fact that Nehemiah's opponents try to intimidate him personally. The adversary of God's people will always go for the leaders. And in doing so, the flock will be disorganized, confused, and ineffectual. How many churches do you know that have split up, crumbled, or whatever because the leadership all turned on each other? It's, it's not a new scheme of the enemy. 
Personally, I think this is at least one reason why so many men struggle with pornography, pride, feelings of futility in regard to prayer, like what's the point? A lack of discipline to study the word daily. Because if the enemy can discredit and distract the shepherd of the home, the family will be disorganized, confused, and ineffectual. So what's the encouragement here? Well, yes, like Nehemiah, we must face such opposition in a holy manner that reflects the character of God, and we must take it that seriously. Consider if Nehemiah would have just said, this is not worth it. This is too hard. This is, I'm, I'm frightened for my life. But he didn't. He said, why should the work stop just because you intimidate and you fear and you distract and you try to strike the shepherd so that the sheep will scatter? Turn to chapter 8. It's actually just there to the right. Most of you won't have to turn if you have ESV. I want us to consider another characteristic of godly leadership. We just got a few minutes left. Look at verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. They asked for it, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood a, a, a number of people. Um, and in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all those men who were standing beside him helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. A godly leader turns people to God's word. And the best way for this um, to be most effective is in a plurality of leadership, a plural leadership. That's what we're seeing here. It's really beautiful. Um, what did the appointed Levite men do when Ezra read from the word? What would they do? They would go and explain it. Um, they explained it to the people, instructing them and helping them to be able to walk in that word. So I want you to know this is what we actually aim to accomplish at Crosspoint. We're led by a plurality of men and it's not just three elders. That's something that we've had a burden as elders to make clear. When we talk about plurality, we're not just talking about three elders. So don't hear it like that when you hear plurality. I want you to hear multiple wise men who lead and who are walking in a manner worthy of what they've been called to. And, and what we hope for here is that there are three elders, but plurality is not limited to just those three. It also includes 24 small group shepherds. You can think of the small group shepherds like the Levites who go out and talk about what we've heard and explain it and help sort through it. And there's 22 of those, 24, who, who are deacons. We preach the word on a Sunday morning and we teach through it on Wednesday nights. And then our hope is that each member of the body would be meeting weekly with their small groups to work through questions and concerns and real life situations where we can be doers of the word and not hearers only. The Bible says, how will they hear if no one tells them? 
It also says, think over what I say and the spirit will give you understanding. I actually want to write that over our door or have someone do a cool painting or something that represents it. Think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. Because what we get from that, we can conclude that anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. So for you, if it's not worth thinking about, don't listen to it. Because that's the conclusion, biblically. If it's not worth thinking about, biblically, it's not worth listening to. But biblically, if it's worth listening to, it's worth thinking about. And in thinking about it, the Spirit gives you understanding. And as we think about it, the Holy Spirit will sometimes give us understanding in a personal study. And other times, it will come through a person who God has appointed to instruct and and explain what we've heard in the preaching. That's what we hope is happening in small groups where you're going and talking about it. Not rehashing the entire message. Um, not just having dinner, but looking at the real life application saying, what does that mean and how do we do this? And working through that in a plural wisdom within that group that is far greater than the sum of its parts. And that's what I want to close with is is two beautiful realities about plural wisdom. I, I grew up where you had like, the church was kind of the kingdom and the pastor was the king. That was, I mean, that's, I, I'm not being ugly. That's just kind of the way I saw it. It's like there's one guy in charge and then there's others under him and then others under them. And um, some of the beautiful reality that we have in plural wisdom is it, it's greater than the sum of its parts. If, if three men sit down to work through something, they don't just have three times the wisdom. Biblically, they're blessed by the Spirit and walking in that manner. And there's a wisdom that comes out of there that's much greater than anything anyone brought to the table. And it's not just equal to the three of them because of the work of the Spirit within that plural wisdom. So it's greater than the sum of its parts. And the second thing is only God can get the glory, not man. That's one of the beautiful things about plural wisdom. If your goal is to know everything and that people will come to you because you know everything and that you tell them the right thing, so that you get the glory for that, you're stealing that from God. You have to know that. Plural wisdom is a good thing. If you are against other people speaking into your life, as a Christian, I I appeal to you to consider that we don't have the wisdom we need within ourselves individually. And, And we don't want to steal glory from God by being the, the one who knows everything or the, the pro at something, but rather to say, well, let's, let's get people together and work through that. A lot of times that's the response. Someone comes to you and says, hey, what do you think about this? A lot of times I'm like, well, this is what I think. I'm to be fully convinced as to what I believe, but I'm also to be completely teachable according to Romans 14. So let's open this discussion up to a couple other people and let's talk about some things that we can do and how we can move. In the remainder of the book, we see a celebration with the Feast of Booths, a confession from the people and a confession from the leadership about their lack of faith and their unbelief. We see an acknowledgement of God's goodness in being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We see a covenant entered into where leaders, priests, and Levites are put into place so that God's people worship God according to God's terms. And it all comes from putting the word before them as, as the, the good leaders are putting the word before them. That, that's why all that happened. So that's why we continue to do what we do here today. I don't believe we'll achieve what God wants us to achieve if we're not regularly putting the word before our people and our people aren't regularly seeking to walk in it and understand it throughout the course of each day of their life. And then the book closes with these words. Look at 1330. Nehemiah 1330. Nehemiah has these final reforms where he he is going to the word and he's trying to make right what's been wrong. 
And that's what we do. We, we, we take our lives and we go to this word and rather than seeing what benefits our life from this word, we just surrender to it and then we want to do what's right in God's eyes. And so that, that's how you approach the word. You don't just say, let me see if I can find anything I think is useful in here. You go to it and you, and you lay yourself bare and you surrender to it. And so the reforms come from them trying to get back in line with what the Lord wants from his people in the worship of him. And just the last verses are just a good conclusion. It says in verse 30, Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. I mean, it's not... And then everything was fixed forevermore. I mean, at the end of this book where these, there, there's this rebuilding and this um, sort of reigniting of the people and this wall being built and we're going to the temple and we got the people in place. They, he doesn't just put a bow on it and say, now it's great. Everything he closes with is so um, they were cleansed from the foreign things. They had duties that were established. They had work that they had to do. And they got the wood for the offering and for the first fruits. I mean, from there, you don't just say work done. You say work begin. You see how that closes? Like now they're, they're going to go do, do work. They're going to go serve the Lord. They're going to go worship as worshipers are intended to. And they're going to stay true to what God wants for them. So a lot of times when we kind of have something we're trying to get right or rebuild or reform or, or you know, bring back into to line with the Lord's wisdom, whether it's marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's a sin we're trying to put to death, whatever it is, we bring it. But when we reach a point where it's like, okay, we did what we need to do, the work's not done. That's kind of where the work begins. You get back to the work of faith. Daily, seemingly menial, seemingly unimportant Tuesday, where you're walking as a Christian who puts God's glory on display by communicating his message on his terms and making sure you're leading like a good, godly leader would as you engage people with that. So let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. I'm thankful for the examples that we have. Lord, obviously, we could spend a lot more time in Nehemiah and see a number of other things that show us how you lead us so we can understand how we lead each other and walk with each other. Um, so, Lord, we are humbled at the depth of your word. Um, and I pray, Lord, that tonight we're, we're instructed that we can leave here eager to stick to the word, eager to pray, eager to face opposition boldly, eager not to let the work stop because of any number of possibilities and circumstances and eager to persevere as your people persevered in, in this book. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We are thankful that he persevered to the point of death on a cross um, so that we can have the fullness of life that we have. Help us not to settle for smaller joys that are really fleeting and no joy at all. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.